when it came to calling, God really shouted at me, Sam. Now, I think the reason he did that was not because I'm profoundly spiritual, but, but I think because he knows I'm thick. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine that sponsors this show and makes it all possible. And here on The Profile, we sit down with a different Christian each week to hear about their life, their faith and their testimony. And I'm really pleased to say that my guest on the show today is a very regular voice on Premier Christian Radio and a regular writer in Premier Christianity magazine. It's the one and only Jeff Lucas. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sam. Nice introduction. One and only. My goodness. Can I live up to that? Nice to be with you. <laughs> the last time um, Premier caught up with you was um, almost a whole year ago. My colleague Justin Briley did a short interview with you, and this was really at the beginning of the pandemic. And you actually said to him that you're hoping that you'll emerge from the pandemic a different person. So as we start to open up now, almost a whole, well, over a year on from the beginning of the pandemic, do you think that's happened? Do you think you're a changed man? I don't know about a changed man. I think significantly revised might be a better way of, of putting it. I mean, it has been an, a, just an insane time. It's felt like a it's felt like a Bruce Willis disaster movie, and Brucey didn't show up with his slightly grubby t-shirt to rescue us from this horrendous time. And obviously, very seriously, around the world, it's been such a challenge. At the beginning of the pandemic, I found myself not being too worried about things that I'd have been really upset about before the pandemic started, if only I could have remembered what I would have previously been upset about. So there's been a kind of uh, something of a realignment of priorities. I don't think we're ever going to fully go back to normal, whatever that is. I am surprised that some of the lessons that I've learned at the beginning of the pandemic, I'm sort of struggling to reinforce them now. But I suppose that's the human condition, Sam, isn't it? We, we, we learn things and then we can lose our grip on the wisdom that we've gained. But I'm certainly hoping that there's been some realignment of priorities and, uh, and that perhaps I'm, I'm not as anxious about playing Trivia Pursuit as I was before this horrendous season began. Sure. Well, here on the profile, we always like to go back to the beginning and hear something of a person's early life. So tell me a little bit about your upbringing and also where Christian faith first came into the picture for you. Yeah, I was I was raised in um, a, a working class family in Ilford in in Essex. And uh, it was a it was a pleasant um, upbringing, but not a Christian one. I was done, as they called it back then in the Anglican church. I was I was christened, not being disrespectful to that at all, but there was no real impact upon me or my family. And it was through the influence, Sam, of an RE teacher at school. So a big shout out to teachers everywhere who didn't just tell me about Jesus, but really demonstrated a life of service and humility. And so when one night I, I prayed a prayer in my bedroom for healing from a minor problem, and it wasn't a terribly faith-filled prayer. In fact, it was almost to whom it may concern. It was that kind of prayer rather than specifically to Jesus. It was God help me. 
And I got up the next morning and was totally healed of this ailment that I had, and it freaked me out. So I phoned the RE teacher, went to her church that evening, which was a baptismal service by immersion. So it looked a bit like an aquatic mugging. And I was totally freaked out by the whole event, but very impacted by the people there. And it was that night Eric Delve was preaching that night. Can't tell you a word that he said. Preachers often hear that, which is so very encouraging. <laughs> um, but it was that night that I decided to follow Jesus. And it was that same evening that I met the young lady who is now my wife, Kay. So it was a pretty good night, really. I got Jesus and Kay <laughs> um, all at the same time. And then, so that was at the age of 17. And by the time I was um, 20, um, Kay and I, an engaged couple, were helping plant a church, and I became that church's full-time minister. Can you believe that, Sam? I was 21, just turning 22. I was a senior minister of a church, dispensing my, my wisdom to all and sundry, and they were incredibly gracious to me. That's how it all began. <laughs> and incredibly, I suppose, since then, you've really gone on in, in that vein, haven't you? A lot of writing, a lot of speaking, a lot of ministry um, o over time. Do, do you trace that back to any sense of calling or a moment where you think, wow, God is calling me into, you know, not just being a Christian, but actually working in Christian ministry specifically? Yeah, about three weeks after I became a Christian. So it was really early and I didn't have a clue about Bible. I didn't know the difference between the Old Testament, the New Testament, the maps at the back, quite frankly. But I was beginning to feel this sort of stirring in my own heart about Christian leadership, which was completely ridiculous because I was, you know, I had not equipped for that at all. Went off to a, a, a weekend, one of those youth weekends, and we had a guest speaker come in and he didn't know any of us at all. Um, but he stood up on the opening night and he said, he said, on the way here, God spoke to me and told me that there are three of you here that he's called into Christian leadership. And then he really freaked me out, Sam, because he said, God has told me your first and last names. And I'm like, what is this all about? Anyway, he said, I'll be chatting with you over the weekend, during the weekend, and this will be a confirmation to you. So it was all very well done. Anyway. On the Saturday night, um, I had this experience of the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon me, and I couldn't understand it at all. So at the end of the, the, the meeting, the service, whatever you want to call it, I wandered up to him. I mean, bear in mind, Sam, I'm a 17-year-old kid with long hair and beads, such was the appalling fashion of the time, and uh, not the shrinking peninsula that I've now got. And I wandered up to this bloke didn't introduce myself and I just asked him a question about the Holy Spirit and he answered my question and I thanked him and I turned to walk away and he tapped me on the shoulder and he said your name is Jeff Lucas isn't it and at that moment I wasn't quite sure what my name was I was completely bewildered and I stammered out yeah yeah and he said God has called you to preach son hasn't he and I said I think so. He said, well, get on with it. So when it came to calling, I, God really shouted at me, Sam. Now, I think the reason he did that was not because I'm profoundly spiritual, but, but I think because he knows I'm thick. 
And I think God probably said to a few assorted passing angels, we've really got to get this bloke's attention because if we don't, he'll, he often becomes an atheist or at least temporarily on the M25 during traffic jams. So we really need to grab hold of him by the scruff of the neck. And so through the joys and pains of 40 something plus years of ministry, the times when it's been exhilarating, the times when I thought, I just need to go and do something else because I'm weary of this. I come back to that backstop of that, that calling that God gave me. It's a long answer to a short question. But uh, if I can just say this, though, God did shout. The only challenge with that is I thought it would continue like that, that there'd be these, these regular downloads from God and I've just got to be, I've got to balance what I just said to you by saying over the last 40 something years, I don't want to sound irreverent, but God has not been as chatty as I initially anticipated. And I think we've got to balance the intervention of God together with the silence of God, his imminence, and at times what feels like his distance. And I've, yeah. I've tried to navigate both. Yes, it reminds me of something you've said previously about how some people talk about prayer as a conversation, but you're saying, you know, if, if I'm honest, that's not really been my experience. I don't feel like God talks back a lot. And I think a lot of Christians actually would identify with that. And sometimes there is this feeling of, oh, I'm not a very spiritual person because my friend or my family member seems to get constant words from God. And I seem to very rarely, if ever, get anything back. I think that's absolutely true. I think what if we're not careful, we can create a kind of Disney-esque view of what it means to follow Jesus. I remember going to, to Disney once with our family, and I wandered up to Mickey Mouse and asked, asked Mickey Mouse for his autograph. And as I'm standing there, it suddenly occurred to me that I'm asking a sweating college student in a furry coat to sign a name that was not his or her own. I had, I'd bought into the myth. And I think if we're not careful, because people's expectation, our expectation of what it means to be a Christian, it's not, it's not downloaded in pure form. It's a patchwork quilt of 10,000 sermons and 100,000 worship songs, many of which we've sung 19 times over. And we build up this patchwork quilt of expectations. And so historically, I've said, oh, yes, prayer is a conversation. And then when I've come back and said, actually, I don't think it is, Dallas Willard said, request sits at the heart of prayer. And I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, when you want to ask God a question, why don't you just present it to him and then just go on with your life as normal? I, I've never found the idea of sitting with my legs crossed, you know, just waiting for hours on end. I've never found that terribly easy. And of course, when I say prayer is not always a conversation, I think for me, rarely is it. The response can come back, well, you're just not spiritual enough, are you? Because if you want to make a Christian feel guilty, just mention prayer, evangelism or money, and they're going to duck and run for the hills. But I just think we need to be more honest. Otherwise, people will not reject authentic Christianity. They'll reject the patchwork quilt, the fabrication that we've created. Because let's face it, it does sound a lot more exciting and sell a lot more books, the exciting, exhilarating version. 
but the reality is often very different. I mean, this is coming through already in this conversation, which I love, but you are known for combining Christian teaching with a very healthy dose of humour. Is that something that is just you being yourself or has there ever been a conscious decision to think, actually, if you communicate using humour and you don't take yourself too seriously, almost tactically or pragmatically, you're more likely to be heard, aren't you? Yeah, because when we laugh at something, we've made a we've made an emotional and, a, and a, an intellectual connection. We've got the idea. I didn't set out to do that. I early on, I discovered that that worked and I never tell jokes. I don't like jokes because, first of all, humor's changed. And if you doubt that, check out Morecambe and Wise um, and some of the other classics of the 70s and 60s and beyond. Uh, humor's change. I do tell stories, um, but I did have to make a conscious decision that I was okay with myself to be amusing, I hope, because there are certain circles within the Christian world. First of all, if you understand what the preacher's saying, then he or she is probably fairly superficial because we're into deep teaching around here. So if we find what you say utterly incomprehensible, then you're probably deep. And what that means is if you're a pretty good teacher, you're more likely to be written off as being lightweight. But then if you add into that humor, well, of course, Jeff just makes us laugh, doesn't he? And I bristled at that, Sam. I, I wanted to be Martin Lloyd-Jones, but not dead. I wanted to I wanted to do a 200 sermons, 200 sermon series on the word and in the book of Romans. And it was never going to be my style. And so I, I did have to come to a conscious decision to say, this is how I am. This is how I communicate. Has that bought me some flack and criticism through the years? Yes. Is that okay? Yeah, not everybody has to like my style, but I need to be at home in my own skin. God called me, not me, to be a, a facsimile of somebody else. So tell me a bit more about how your life and ministry developed and led you to where you are now. You're a teaching pastor, Timberline Church over in the US. Um, you're currently talking to us, though, from the UK. And if I understand correctly, you very much live in both places, don't you? And you travel back and forth. So tell me a little bit about what's led you to that point. Uh, quite an unusual, um, quite an unusual ministry being based in two countries sort of at once. Yeah, I, I think um, we, we were, Kay and I were involved in church planting. One weekend, we had this chap come and speak for us from, from British Youth for Christ. And he said, um, he said we've, got this, we've got this conference that we're involved with. We're in our second year. Uh, this is new thing. It's called Spring Harvest. And uh, he said, it's happening next week. And we, we could do with a youth, a youth speaker. And he said, do you fancy doing it? which was weird because he had not heard me communicate at all. And so um, I went along to Spring Harvest and stayed for 30 years. I mean, not continuously at Butlins. I went home, you know, but um, was involved with um, Spring Harvest and leadership of that. Uh, and that, um, that led to wider ministry in the UK and writing for Christi Premier Christianity magazine, which I've been doing for a very long time now, and, and, um, and Premier Radio, but then also visiting America. And, and what I discovered, Sam, is that Americans are irrationally kind to British people. 
you know i have discovered this as well on my occasional trips over the ponds i have a lot of love and time for uh, for the americans i think probably because they're just so nice to me all you have to do is open your mouth and speak in a british accent and they immediately think you're intelligent it's wonderful well i mean you can read a telephone directory in our mumbling british way that we do and they think that's classy which is of course a complete deception but i'm happy for them to stay in that deception here's what i discovered i discovered that with a british accent and some humor my passion for the local church, it meant that I could go into churches and say some things in a kindly way, which my American pastor colleagues could never get away with. It was almost like God getting me under the radar. And that developed into a relationship with Timberline Church. Um, and Timberline's pretty remarkable situation, a, a church originally of around 140 people that kind of grew to an orbit of around 10,000, about 5,000 in attendance any given weekend. And that, that grew because um, a stripper came along to Timberline and uh, her hairdresser was part of our uh, was part of our congregation. He used to tell her about Jesus. And so this stripper called Nikki showed up. And she became a Christian, went back to the strip joint, shared her story. She read the entire New Testament in four days and went back and shared her story um, with, um, with the, um, the strip club. And um, at her baptism, 18 of her friends from the club came along and uh, 11 of them became Christians that night. And it was from that point that the church began to explode. So um, I've been connected with Timberline now for about 30 years and in this role of going backwards and forwards, teaching pastor leadership role there for about 20 years. And it's been really great um, most of the time, simply because as someone who does a lot of itinerant ministry, there's a danger that itinerants can be trekking around talking about local church but never actually in one. And I think that's a bit of a problem. And actually, when you're part of the joy and the drama and the tension and the breakthrough and all of the everything else that is involved in local church leadership, you're not just spouting a load of theory, which can actually be quite damaging to local churches, but it's rooted in your own experience with church ongoingly. So, um, I've been really grateful. Ken and I have been so grateful to call Timberline our home. I suppose one of the, the nice things about being able to travel and speak is you learn things from different places and different contexts. Now, I'm sure because of COVID, there might have been a little bit less traveling than before. But nevertheless, thinking about the UK church specifically, what are the signs of hope that you're seeing? You know, there's an awful lot of bad news out there at the moment. Every survey that comes out is showing decline. It's affecting every denomination. It's not just the Church of England, although a lot of the numbers point to decline in the Church of England. Nevertheless, people often tell me, well, you know, there are, there are signs of growth, Sam. There are, things, there are good things happening. Can you point to a few specific examples you've seen that would encourage people? Well, I've really been excited genuinely by the adaptability that's been shown by the church. And, um, and for some churches, that's been a bigger stretch than others. Some some congregations would not have dreamed that they'd have they'd have people 
um, peering into iPhone cameras and, and recording messages. And, and, and actually church is going way beyond simply an online experience like that, but genuinely looking to find hybrid church um, online constructs that can really be helpful. Pre-COVID, um, I would say, and this is still true now, when, when our friends from America come to the UK, they are always staggered by the level of community engagement and volunteerism that is shown in the British church. And I think it's true to say that if all of our street pastors and food bank volunteers and debt counsellors and the myriad of other um, different ways in which God's people serve in the UK. If they were all withdrawn, I think there would be a major and a very significant draft. And so I want to say, hopefully in the right way, I am proud of the British church when it comes to that. And I think, frankly, being British, we're quite good at putting ourselves down. We're quite good at pointing out the negatives. And as you rightly say, there are lots and lots of challenges. Nevertheless, there are some things that are amazing. Spring harvest and festivals like it. Some of those festivals could not have happened, certainly in some parts of the USA, because of denominational separatism and a sense of competition. Whereas events like Soul Survivor, historically spring harvest, new wine, whatever, Christians in the UK have been able to come together under an umbrella of mutuality, respect, learning from each other. I think that's brilliant, uh, that sense of cooperation. So just a few reasons to be cheerful. Absolutely. I mean, that kind of unity that you talk about, Christians have gathered to some of these big events from across denominations. And the other thing that strikes me is, of course, it doesn't really matter which church you go to. We're all singing the same songs. There's the other funny thing is actually you find a lot of these worship songs, whether you go to a um, you know, Methodist church or whether you're in a New Frontiers church, or whether you're in an Anglican church, we're often singing similar songs. Um, and, um, and dare I say it as well, a number of Christians are reading the same magazine in Premier Christianity magazine, if that's not too cheesy a plug. You've been writing for us for, uh, I think you were saying over 20 years, the back page column. Yeah, I think it's 22 years. I'd, I'd love to actually know. So I don't know whether you've got access to the archives, but let I me know. I do. I do have access to the archives. I also have access to our readers' surveys, Jeff, and we run those every few years. And we ask people, what are your favorite bits of Premier Christianity magazine? And not to inflate your ego too much, but the consistent response we have is that people's favorite columnist and favorite section of the magazine is reading your good self, reading Jeff Lucas. So that begs the question, Jeff, where do you get your ideas from? Every month you're writing on a different issue or a different topic or a different story um, and to write every month consistently for that period of time is incredibly difficult how do you stay fresh and keep those ideas coming um I, this can sound a little bit um excessively spiritual and i'm not normally guilty of that sam but i i, I actually feel a sense of the pleasure of god in writing for the magazine and um is as a result of that, I do approach it prayerfully. And it's something that I want to do as long as it's useful to you and other members of the team for me to do it. I love to watch and observe and notice things. But in addition to that, I've got a fairly highly developed gift of ineptitude. 
And what that means is I stagger my way through life a little bit like a Mr. Bean with a Bible. And I've got a vast collection of embarrassing anecdotes and stories in which I am, I am not the victim, I'm the hapless idiot. And so that gift of ineptitude has fueled me quite significantly and continues to fuel me. I, I, I used to think that when I was all grown up, I wouldn't be quite as thick, but I do manage to still get myself into loads of embarrassing scrapes. So with a gift of observation, perhaps, combined with the um, idiotic behavior that has been my pattern, there is quite a source of material. <laughs> well, I have to say, Jeff, as well, you do have a wonderful way with words. I mean, you just referred to yourself as Mr. Bean with a Bible, which is just a wonderful, uh, just almost sort of painting a cartoon in people's heads with a, with a phrase like that. That's a wonderful way of putting it. Can I refer to you as Mr. Bean with a Bible from now on, or would that offend you? Uh, no, I'm I'm not easily offended. You can call me whatever you like, really. Well, within limits, let's within face it. reason. Very good. Um, so, just another question on the writing. There's a lot of people, a lot of Christians, who would love to uh, really do writing as for, the, for to make a living as a career. Whether writing Christian fiction or Christian nonfiction, I speak to a lot of people who would you know love to write a book or would love to have a career in that. How reasonable or sensible is it for a christian to make a living from writing christian books forget it <laughs> just generally speaking forget it i mean I've, I've i've done i don't know 32 or 34 books now and writing maybe it's just my experience but writing in the christian world unless you're gonna unless you change your name to Lucado, Lucado, or or Warren, um, you're not going to make a living from writing Christian material unless you're able to be widely published in the USA, which is a, a much bigger market. It, it's a lofty ambition, and, and it might be that there's someone out there who can, who can do it, but writing has always been a part of what I've done. But if it was exclusively what I'd done, I would be much thinner than I currently am, which might not be a bad thing. Totally. You get my drift. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. So you're not, you're not currently flying around in private helicopters and living in mansions then as a result of writing Christian books. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that's, um, it sounds really nice. If you know anybody <laughs> who could help me out in that direction, I'll go that I'm willing to suffer that pathway, but it hasn't happened yet. Well, your new book is entitled Singing in Babylon, and I've been told it's a very timely release given what's been happening with COVID. So tell us a little bit about the new book. Yeah, it's all about Daniel, Daniel's story. And when we look at Daniel, we either get confused and, <clears throat> excuse me, treat it like an ap apocalyptic jigsaw that we've got to figure out, or we, we focus on the lion's den, the fiery furnace, and then move on. But the truth is that Daniel probably as a 14 or 15 year old and a member of the Israeli nobility was deported and uh, actually placed in lockdown. The more I thought about it, Sam, much of the Bible is written by people in lockdown for people in lockdown. And there are plenty of examples of that. And Daniel found himself in the midst of a second choice life. My friend Viv Thomas coined that phrase actually writing about Daniel years ago. What's a second choice life? It's when life throws circumstances at you that you wouldn't choose. My friend Dick Foth says, life is what you get when you expected something else. And here is Daniel 
in the biggest and most beautiful, most intimidating city in the world at that time, Babylon, completely displaced. And now he has to pivot, which is the word that everybody is using right now. We're all pivoting. It's a bit like unprecedented. There's an unprecedented use of the word unprecedented as well. <laughs> yeah. But here he is pivoting and adapting and not just surviving and flourishing. And the metaphor is that he learned how to sing in Babylon. So um, that's what the book's about. And it has felt like it has been a really timely message, um, obviously written a year before we had ever heard of anything called COVID-19 but feels very relevant for this season and I hope beyond. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. Hear lots more from my guest on the profile today. It's Jeff Lucas, coming up right after this. More. 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 We often want more, but is it always a bad thing? Isn't wanting more knowledge a good thing? What about more understanding? More perspective. More wisdom. More action. More inclusion. Discover more of the good things at the brand new Premier Christianity magazine website. So much more than a monthly magazine, Premier Christianity website helps you go deeper in your faith and is full of inspiration of what God is doing in the world today. It's Premier Christianity, but so much more. Register today at premierchristianity.com. premierchristianity.com the profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the UK's leading Christian publication. We feature loads of great interviews just like this one each and every month, plus all your latest news, analysis, comment and more. And one of our most popular columnists is Jeff Lucas. Jeff has had a very long writing and speaking career in the Christian world. If you've been to events such as Spring Harvest, you almost certainly would have heard him speak before. He has a wonderful ability to combine great teaching with a very healthy dose of humor as well and that's already coming across in our conversation today here on the profile radio show we like to delve into a person's life faith and testimony so we're hearing lots from jeff lucas about his story about where he's ministered about how he became a christian and there's loads more great stuff coming up for you in this part two we're going to get to that in just a moment before we do a reminder that this show is brought to you in association with the magazine that i edit that's premier christianity magazine and we've recently relaunched our website meaning that every single day there is brand new articles videos and more going up on premier christianity Com. I would love for you to check it out. We are more than just a monthly print magazine. There's a huge amount happening online as well, plus podcasts like this. So why not check that out at premierchristianity.com. And while you're there, you can look at our various subscription offers. You can now subscribe to the magazine for as little as £3.95 a month. And you can also get our brand new digital edition, meaning you can read the magazine on your phone or tablet. So premierchristianity.com is the place to go for more information on that. All right, time to rejoin my conversation with the writer, speaker and author, Jeff Lucas. Let's listen in. At the moment, a lot of church leaders are 
um, talking about this, this another word that's been used a lot is hybrid. In fact, you used it a few minutes ago. This idea being that the future of church is both physical and digital. The idea that we've said goodbye to church services only being in person, but that from now on churches will have to do a lot more digitally, whether that is streaming services or whether that is running life groups or small groups through Zoom. Is that your feeling at the moment that, that in future churches are, are going to have to and should continue to do the hybrid model where there are opportunities to connect with the local church, both physically and online? Yeah, I absolutely feel that way. And, and at Timberline, we're working hard not just to produce online content, but an online campus with different rooms where you can really go and explore all kinds of different opportunities. Having said that, and I'm going to run the risk of sounding a little bit antique as I say this, I am totally for hybrid and online, but just watching 20-something thousand people at Wembley recently um, at uh, you know Euro 2020, as we're still calling it, despite the fact that we're in 2021, um, and watching the joy of them being together, I don't think it's antique or old fashioned to say that there is something quite unique about being together. I was gonna to say shoulder to shoulder. Well, as far as social distancing allows, there is something about that. Now in saying that, I think church leaders everywhere have been on a tightrope because we're not in any way wanting to diminish the value of online. And we certainly haven't wanted to make anybody feel guilty and come back to a personal gathering before they're comfortable and it's safe for them to do so. So you're a church leader. You know that this time has been, frankly, horrendous because whatever decisions you make, be they just about people's opinions or about their politics, you're in a lose-lose situation. Uh, and, and it becomes increasingly, it becomes very, very difficult. So I, I really want to see the church continue with innovation, but I also don't want to get to the point where we do the pendulum swing because we're all pendulums. We think we're balanced, but we're all in reaction to something. And I remember when Christian media, Premier Radio is now a reality, Premier Christian Radio. There are, there are Christian TV channels here in the UK. But back when all this started, people were talking about the electronic church. And I was always a bit nervous about that statement. Um, so I think hybrid is good. The recognition that we do need both. And there's just something about being with God's people. Does that sound really antique and old fashioned? I don't know. Not at all. No, not at all. Picking up on something you just said about the kind of politics of this, though, and you have to correct me on this, but as far as I can tell, for the most part, UK Christians have understood if their church is having a physical service, they'll they'll turn up with a face mask. There might be one or two who, you know, really have a big issue with that. But as far as I can tell, most people go along and they, they wear their face mask. At the same time, when I look at some of the stuff happening in America, it seems to have been very politically divisive, where a face mask has almost become a left-right issue. And if you're on the right, then you feel like this is an invasion of your freedom. And if you're on the left, you feel like we absolutely have to wear this. Am I right in thinking that? Because that must that must present a real dilemma for US church leaders. I don't think UK church leaders have had to face to the same extent where, as far as I can tell, most UK Christians have gone along with wearing a face mask, even if they don't like it. They're, they're not going to protest politically about it because they understand we're in a global pandemic. 
No, I mean, it is a fact that the whole issue became very politicized, particularly in the previous administration. And that has somewhat faded now. But when you've when you've got two party politics, Republican and Democrat, and, and uh, opinion can quickly become very polarized. And so that became very difficult. And we weren't just talking, we weren't just talking about the effectiveness of a mask. We were talking about a political statement. And also, I would suggest a blanket commitment to something called freedom, which is actually a mirage because we're not totally free. And so I had people say, how dare you ask us to wear a face mask? That's the government controlling us. My response is, well, are you now gonna drive home wearing a seatbelt? Because the government requires you to do that as well and not have two or three beers before you get in the car. And so the notion of absolute freedom has been quickly disseminated and, and, and then fueled all kinds of opinions and, and it and it was really difficult because you've got people who are demanding that churches shut and that if we do gather we're going to have masks and then you've got the polar opposite of that and often the leaders us really wanting to be political because the bible is a very political book but not wanting to be party political that is far more difficult it involves endorsing or rejecting a candidate. Um, it might seem like cowardice, but it's been a very, very difficult tension. And sometimes, to be honest, Sam, and I'm glad you've asked the question, UK Christians have shouted across the Atlantic and, and told our brothers and sisters in America, particularly leaders, Christian leaders, what they should be saying and doing, not realizing the complexity of the situation. So continue to pray that wisdom and grace will be demonstrated. We Christians can be pretty good at ranting and it's it's not beautiful or edifying and it's certainly not gonna win anybody. If we could have a little bit more calm exchange, that would be a lot better. Mm. Yes, and I suppose as well, before we Christians like to even get involved in politics and criticize politicians, we have to look at get our own house in order to a certain extent, don't we? I mean, here at Premier, we we no, make no apology for reporting on the bad news as well as the good news because um, we're journalists and we're not just here to sugarcoat things, but we're here to hopefully give people the truth of what's going on. And but it is with great regret and heavy hearts we've had to report recently on some real failures in church leadership across the world. It does seem like there's a lot of leaders um, deconstructing. Um, their faith, pulling everything apart, which can be a good thing. Pull, pull your faith apart and look at it. But sadly, a lot of those leaders, as they've done that, have decided I'm no longer a Christian at all. And we've also seen some terrible moral failure in, in recent months, various scandals. You mentioned a moment ago, uh, Jeff, about I could probably look through the Premier Christianity Archive and see how long you've been writing for us. Well, I could also look through the archive and tell you that sadly, stories of Christians and moral failure are not new. And although we've seen a string of them in recent months, it does unfortunately seem like something that, that's, that's always happened. And so as much as I want to ask the question, you know, what are we getting wrong and how do we fix it? I suppose the question is also, why do we see this quite consistently, actually, with us Christian journalists having to report on some pretty bad stories involving Christian leaders and some prominent Christian leaders in both the US and the UK um, losing their faith or getting themselves into big moral failure and trouble? I think some leaders have gone down a pathway of destruction rather than deconstruction. It's a good thing to 
allow your faith to be interrogated because if it can't stand up to that, it's going to blow away in the wind anyway. I think that COVID has brought all kinds of incredible pressures. And I think we also have to live with the fact that every single one of us, you and me both, we're all busted. We're all broken. We're under construction. And unfortunately, sometimes leaders have been the last people to admit that they're struggling. Um, a distant colleague of mine, I can't really call him a friend, um, was one of those not really reported on who took his own life um, recently, having had a ministry to thousands of high school students, warning them or trying to help them avoid the peril of suicide. And here is a guy that got into total despair. And I think sometimes leaders have mistaken being a good example, which we are called to be, with projecting an image, which we are not called to do. And so while I'm not suggesting that leaders take their dirty laundry onto the platform every week and just blether on about their own fragilities, if we could just be a bit more authentic, talk about our struggles. I spent a year in clinical depression about 20 years ago. There are some prominent churches, um, both in the UK and the USA, um, who would not have me speak at their churches any longer. And I fear that it's because I talked about that struggle rather than emphasizing victorious overcoming faith. But I look at the Bible, at the Apostle Paul saying, we've been feeling the sentence of death in our hearts, or Jesus feeling overwhelmed in Gethsemane. And the biblical picture I've got is one of hope in the midst of fragility. And so I think if we could just get a bit more authentic, indeed a lot more authentic, um, that perhaps some of these terrible casualties um, wouldn't take place. I, I'm, I'm always saddened. I'm no longer surprised, Sam. And if that shouldn't sound jaundiced, jaundiced I, haven't, I haven't raised a white flag of surrender and just said, oh, well, it's just the way it is. But I, I do think with a bit more honesty and authenticity, we could perhaps help a few, uh, you know, some of these tragedies not unfold as they have. Yeah, absolutely. So thinking back then, you told us the wonderful story of, of how you became a Christian in your teens. How would you say your faith looks different today to then? What's changed? Um, when I became a Christian, within weeks, I knew everything. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was like a biblical gunslinger. And whatever question you threw at me, I would either attempt to answer it or bluff my way out of it. And a lot of the T's were crossed and the I's were dotted. And I'm sure you hear this a lot with people who've been around faith for a while. I'm a lot happier with mystery now. Now, that doesn't mean that I've abandoned the foundations of a biblical faith. And that doesn't mean that I have let my grip, uh, I've loosened my grip on what is essential to be a follower of Jesus. But there's a lot of stuff I don't understand. I don't, don't really understand prayer I don't really understand the problem of answered prayer. Some people would struggle with unanswered prayer. It's the answered prayers that bother me because it's like, why did God answer that one, but not this one over there, which surely, if you took my opinion to hand, would be far more important. So I'm much more at home with mystery um, than I ever was. 
And I hope that I'm not as guilt driven. Um, uh, I can't remember who it was. Um, I think it was Martin Luther, indeed it was, who said, most Christians have enough religion to feel guilty about their sins, but not enough to enjoy life in the spirit. And it was nobody's fault but my own. But in my early Christian years, I was really neurotic and terrified I was not going to be in the will of God and almost had a breakdown over that very issue. And I think I'm learning to not, not be any less diligent, but to recognize that I am, you and I, we are greatly loved right now as we are. And God, although sometimes it seems contrary to this statement, life seems contrary, but God is faithful and unbelievably kind. And um, so I think that has grown in me as the years have gone by. Yeah, I really relate to what you say about being in the will of God, because I, I think sometimes if, if your theology is God has this one path for me and I have to completely walk in at all times, it can actually become quite paralyzing to think, well, you know, do I do I take this job or do I move house? Or if if there's if the stakes are so high that, you know, one of those options will lead to absolute catastrophe because I'm outside of God's will and the other one will be the absolute the right one. If the stakes are that high, it, it becomes very paralyzing on any kind of decision making. I mean, my, my favorite example was a, a Christian friend who would pray over a menu at a restaurant and ask God what she should order. And you think, wow, you know, that's that's actually quite a restrictive view. When, when actually you think, is it not possible that God's OK with you having the burger or the chicken? And actually that's 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 down to you and you can make a call on that. You don't have to run everything through. Is this exactly the will of God or not? I think. You're absolutely right. I mean, to labor the menu analogy, that's a recipe for neurosis, I think. <laughs> and, and actually, I don't think it speaks to any kind of maturity. I no longer believe that there is only one person that you can marry. Why? But the Bible doesn't say that. And if, if I've married the one and then um, she dies and then I marry somebody else or there's a biblical divorce, does that mean that that God was holding someone in reserve. I, I think, I think what we've done is we create a tightrope for us to balance on, rather than a field for us to play in. And I've got two adult kids and and, and now some grandsons. When my thirty-seven-year-old son doesn't call me up to ask me if he can ride on his bike, um, I anticipate that he's going to make his own choices. And I think we Christians have neglected wisdom, which our Jewish friends are really good at. And we've replaced wisdom with unending revelation, God always speaking. So I don't ever, I want to, I want to have my first love, but I don't want to have my first faith because my first faith was neurotic and terrified. And I don't want to go back there. Well, we're drawing to a close, but just before we do, um, I did want to ask you about a subject that's close to my heart, and uh, that is the the tours and the trips you've been running to Israel. Um, having been to the Holy Land myself many times, um, I could wax lyrical forever, Jeff, about how wonderful it is, but I'm sure people would rather hear it from you. I'm often surprised how I sometimes meet Christians who are very keen to go to America or Australia and visit big mega churches, and I think that that can be a wonderful thing to do. I always wonder... Wouldn't it be even more exciting to walk where Jesus walked? Tell me what are what are the reasons why you're so passionate about taking trips to Israel and, and why you think it's so worthwhile for Christians to do? 
Well, when we do our trips, and we're doing another one in November to Israel, um, we're not a kind of Moses had a cappuccino here, quite possibly. Let's all stand amazed and, <laughs> and uh, have a moment. But walking in the biblical landscape brings the Bible to life like like nothing other than, you know, if you've sailed on the Sea of Galilee, perhaps shared communion there and moments of commitment, there's something very, very profound about that. I think the other thing is that we found, Sam, when we've done these trips, that we we become part of a mobile community of people who are who are going to this place where they've read about it all of their lives. It's become very much a centerpiece in their lives. But now look, it's not fiction, it's real. And there is something about that and the way that the Lord uses that to do some pretty amazing things in people's lives. And I'm not, um, I don't ever want to overstate these things, but in the last few years, I have seen some very, amazing holy spirit activity as we've taken those trips and i think it's simply because when you stand on the land it's not the land's not magical but the experience of knowing that the narrative is true this is not fiction it's fact um, there is something very grounding and very beautiful about that so i i love doing these trips they're really hard work if you ever, ever lead a tour like this um, but it's an amazing privilege to do it too. Yeah, something very faith building, isn't it? About um, being in the place where these things really happened and a reminder that we Christians read a book based on real events with real people in real places. Well, Jeff Lucas has been an absolute uh, pleasure to chat. If you want to find out more about Jeff Lucas, the tours to the Holy Land, the books, the new one, including Singing in Babylon, then visit his website, jefflucas.org. But for now, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us on the profile. Thanks so much, Sam. Great to be with you. I'm Sam Howes, and you have been listening to The Profile Podcast. Really hope you enjoyed that interview. There's loads more where that one came from. Over 200 interviews with different Christians from all walks of life available now on The Profile Podcast, and new ones coming each and every week. If you have been enjoying these interviews, we would so appreciate it if you could take just five seconds to give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. It helps other people to discover the show. So why not do that now? Give us a rating and a review and we'll see you next time.